This is an ABC podcast. Hi, Amanda Smith here, bringing you Sporty, the thinking person's sports show. And a strange episode in the history of sport coming up, when the Cold War and the counterculture had the Americans and Soviets experimenting with some pretty wild and weird and wacky ways to produce sporting success. Also, what sport is this and what language is it? And a hint for you, it's in Australia. We'll come back to that later, here on Sporty. early 1990s, one of the football teams in the AFL, the Adelaide Crows, they held a pre-season training camp where an invited guest motivational speaker convinced the players that they could walk on hot coals. Now, a bed of hot coals had been prepared ready for them, and the first player to walk on these coals got first-degree burns on his feet. So the idea was abandoned at that point. Now, to any rational mind, this sounds like a completely ridiculous thing to do, but it is just one of many experiments that have been done in sport with mind control, some of them very esoteric, in the quest for sporting success. Ed Hawkins is a UK-based sports writer who's been investigating this. He's the author of The Men on Magic Carpets, about this quest to create a superhuman sports star. Now, Ed, there's a similar sort of story that you have about a soccer team in the UK uh, that started you on this path, yeah? Yeah, so in 1980, Halifax Town, a pretty mediocre football team back in 1980, they were playing Manchester City in an FA Cup match. Halifax Town thought they needed as much help as they could get, so they they asked for a hypnotist. And this guy called Romark did indeed hypnotise each of the Halifax Town players and in particular hypnotised a guy called John Smith, who was a striker, and he'd be saying, you will go to sleep now, John Smith, and then you'll overcome the power of Manchester City. And John Smith's thinking, what is this absolute rubbish? But John Smith set up the winning goal, and Halifax beat them, and it was a major upset. And this guy, Romark, who was probably a chancer, well, almost certainly was a chancer, his next trick was to go on to um, try to drive a car through the streets of Ilford in Essex, blindfolded, and drove straight into a police car. Um, and <laughs> as, something as else. You, as you said, though, a chancer who got lucky with the soccer story with Halifax Town. Now, it's really, though, in the 1960s and 70s that you've delved into this idea of applying psychic powers to sports performance. Now, what was the mix of you know, of political and cultural factors that were sort of swirling around then that brought this idea of the bringing the, the supernatural into sport? Well, in the 60s, the counterculture movement, hippie movement, when that was taking hold in the US, it was a very fertile ground for people to subscribe to this idea that a superhuman could be created basically through yoga and meditation and 
There was a retreat set up on the West Coast called the Esalen Institute, which is infamous. It was one of the cornerstones of the counterculture movement. Anything went there, nude hot tub bathing. George Harrison landed his helicopter there to jam with Ravi Shankar. It was all going off at the Esalen Institute in the 1960s, so it was was easy for it to catch hold. I want to talk to you about the Esalen Sports Centre in a moment, but... This sort of counterculture that you're talking about also comes up against or is occurring at the same time as the Cold War. Tell us about the Soviet Hidden Human Reserves Project in relation to sport. Sure. So during the Cold War, both America and the Soviets were basically trying to find any way to win or any way to prove that their way of life was superior. So uh, the Soviets had a great rich heritage of mystic seers believing that people were capable of superhuman skills and that might be walking through walls, distant mind control, feeling no pain, mass hypnosis, these kind of weird and wonderful things that you would read about in superhero comic books. The Soviets actually believed it was possible and they set up a program called Hidden Human Reserves to try to create a superhuman soldier and they had their best mystics working for them they had uh, almost a replica of the oval office and they put their best mind control experts in there 24 hours a day trying to control the thoughts of u.s presidents now Russians trying to control befuddled U.S. presidents is is rather a hot topic at the moment, but this was going back to the Cold War. How did they apply this to sport as well as to the military? Sport was kind of a training ground, really, and that's where they tested a lot of their theories and practices, and they had in the crowd at the 1978 World Chess Championship match between Korchnoi and Karpov. They had Dr. Zukar, and he was a, he was one of their mind control experts, and he was trying to place thoughts in the head of the guy that they didn't want to win to try to unsettle him. There was also talk about people in the stands at tennis matches willing the opponent they didn't want to win to believe he had ants in his muscles. But a lot of it was their own athletes trained to control the levels of pain they felt, control their heart rate, control blood flow, essentially trying to calm down so they could have a quiet mind to perform at their best to achieve a sporting perfection. So then at Esalen, the Esalen Sports Centre in California, what sort of things were they doing in relation to athletic performance, you know, what sort of psychic powers or alternative states of consciousness were they trying to harness and apply? The same stuff as the Russians. They were doing the same sort of thing, you know, ordinary sort of stuff, walk through walls, levitate, (laughs) um, feel no pain, really bonkers stuff. But if we're talking about a spectrum here, that's at the quite the far end, the far out end of the spectrum. And the most the consistent belief was to try to relax people when they were playing it so that they could have these superhuman experiences. And sort of in the 60s and moving on through into the 70s, the real thrust of a lot of their work, although some of it was more esoteric, as you say, was to rail against this win-at-all-costs attitude, this macho, aggressive culture within professional sport 
in America at the time, which they felt was very damaging and can lead to depression, substance abuse and all manner of other issues, which we read about all the time with professional athletes. Yes, well, in a way, at at least some of what you're talking about is what we would now think of uh, in the vogue of our day and and much less woo-woo as things like neuroplasticity and mindfulness and being in the zone. That's exactly what it is. It's just those words which are far more acceptable or palatable to the modern world instead of talking about superhuman abilities. These ideas in the 60s formed the basis for modern day sports psychology is very much mindfulness and meditation and yoga and being able to quieten the mind so the athlete's body can do what it is naturally able to do. It's about preventing the mind getting in the way. And a good example of that might be the England football team at any major tournament before the World Cup of of last summer. They're very, very tense, very afraid of making mistakes and they just, their mind stops their bodies doing what it's naturally able to do. Now, they got to the semi-finals in the World Cup last summer and they were leading at half-time. Now, did they then go in at half-time break and then realise the enormity of what they were about to achieve and then they all tensed up? And they became afraid again. Now, if you allow your mind to get worried or fretting about making mistakes or overthinking, then your muscles are going to tense up and you're not able to play a natural game. It's sports psychology 101. There was, though, as you're mentioning, some more far-out stuff experimented with, and some of that has some resonance with the US military as well. I mean, you mentioned the Soviet military, but, you know, at the same time as the Esalen Sports Centre, for example, the US military was experimenting with the paranormal to harness superpowers too, wasn't it? It's the stuff that John Ronson wrote about in The Men Who Stare at Goats. Is there any connection? Yeah, that's right. The Esalen Institute inspired the programs like the men who stare at goats, people who can walk through walls or or stop the heart of a goat. I mean, the Russians had somebody who could stop the heart of a frog, for example, and the Soviets and the Americans were kind of egging each other on at this time. So the Americans had to have their own program and Esalen was a place that they went to to get ideas and get experts to come on board and help them out. Jim Shannon, who is the person behind the 1st Earth Battalion, getting soldiers to do all these weird and wonderful things, he actually studied at Esalen. There was another project called Project Jedi, which was at West Point in the 80s, and that was using Mike Murphy, who was one of the founders of the Esalen Institute. And and if there's a guy who is at the centre of the whole of this story, it's Mike Murphy. He was the founder of Esalen. It was his baby, all of his ideas. And he was really influenced by Indian philosophy and mysticism, yeah? Yes. The word that Murphy uses to describe superpowers is Siddhi. Now, Siddhi is uh, a Buddhist term for superpower. That's how it's translated. And it goes back thousands of years, examples of these Siddhis written in the scriptures of these people who can do all these crazy things. You know, as I said, walking through walls, levitating, feeling no pain, seeing into the future. As I said, all these Jedi mind tricks that we know about from the Star Wars films, um, because that's the other 
surprising element about it. The Esalen Institute, Mike Murphy, they inspired George Lucas to create the the Star Wars films based on what they were teaching. There's also an Australian connection with the Esalen Sports Centre too, isn't there, in that uh, the great Australian athletics coach Percy Serity was something of an inspiration uh, and a guest at Esalen in the mid-70s, not long before he died. Yeah, that's right. Percy Serity was a guest at Esalen. They had him over to give lectures and talks about running and his coaching career and the way he did it. And listen, Esalen was far out. Anything pretty much went there. But Percy Serity really tested them. (laughs) Uh, I have to say, they couldn't quite um, come to terms with Percy's personality. Let's let's He was a very big personality. He was a big personality. He had a tendency to um, uh, exploding into rants telling him his audience how useless they are and how they'll never make anything of themselves. Um, so he was quite a challenge, Percy. But, you know, he was a real innovator at the time and he, he fitted perfectly with some of the Esalen ideology. I mean, for example, Herb Elliott, he was Herb's coach and he had Herb in a trance for a lot of his races. He would take him away, particularly in one famous race, he took him away to a hut in Ireland and had him in a trance for two or three days in there basically to get him to the track, to the start line, in a trance so he could run the race that he wanted him to run. Yes, I've, I've interviewed Herb Elliott years gone by about Percy Serity and his methods. He never mentioned that, but certainly he talked about Serity having very unorthodox ideas. And one of them was that he was definitely on about becoming a better person through effort in sport. Um, I just wonder, though, Ed, with... I mean, we'll get onto this a little bit more, the the sort of influence and legacy of the Esalen Sports Centre and also the Soviet Hidden Human Reserves Project. But I just wonder, at that time, around that time as, as well as when doping, performance-enhancing drugs start coming into sport, and in a way, did they sort of take over from this other path I think that's exactly what happened, particularly with the Russians. They basically replaced their hidden human reserves program for athletes with their drugs program because this was something which was far more reliable. You know, an athlete could get injured doing meditation and yoga and and what have you when they're trying to achieve these extraordinary things, but the uppers, downers and in-betweeners could keep them going and produce far better results. So I think that's one of the main reasons why the movement in sport for this esoteric way of doing things basically just kind of slowed up. Um, and the other one of the other reasons why the gurus and mystics approach failed was because sport has a very macho and aggressive win at all cost attitude and it was just a little bit too woo-woo for a lot of coaches for their guys to be doing this kind of thing they just thought well what is this nonsense you know get out there play as hard as you can then win we're not sitting around meditating cross-legged chanting om that's not going to win us the game Where does it live on, though, in sport? I mean, does it? For example, a buzzword in coaching circles in recent times seems to be vulnerability, which is the sort of antithesis of the sort of macho win-at-all-costs idea you're talking about as well. Yeah, and another word is love. You know, if you can cultivate teammates loving each other and really to feel connected, then they can achieve 
extraordinary things and go past teams or franchises who have more money or have better players. It, you know, it happens all the time in sport. And that was one of the big things that the Esalen Institute was about in those days in the 1960s, about creating team spirit. And as you said earlier, what was considered pretty way out, uh, some of it at least has really become the absolute basis of sports psychology now. Yeah, it has. Any sports psychologist would be talking about trying to get the athlete to quiet in his or her mind to stop the chatter of the brain getting in the way of you know, the crunching forehand or you know, the, the conversion kick. And if you can quieten your mind and prevent stress impacting your performance, then you're almost halfway there. And Ed Hawkins is the author of The Men on Magic Carpets, Searching for the Superhuman Sports Star. Ed, it's really good to speak with you here on Sporty. Thank you. And you. Thanks for having me. Okay, have a listen to this little bit of sports commentary and see if you can work out which sport it is. Pega una patada maravillosa, Asbury, y avanza. No, 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 no hace marca, fíjate. No, fallo tremendo. Golazo, señores. The female voice there is Vanessa Gattaca. What's the sport you're calling, Vanessa? AFL rules. Now, this is an example of something that started as kind of a broadcast experiment, really, by the National Ethnic and Multicultural Broadcasters Council and the AFL in 2017. And now live commentary of select AFL games is being done, well, as well as in Spanish, in Mandarin, Arabic, Dinka, Greek, Italian, and also Hindi. And Habir Singh Kang is one of the Hindi commentators. Habir, when did your interest in Australian football begin? Well, it sort of happened straight away because I came to a family who were already into uh, sports. When did you come to Australia? 2003. From India? From India, yeah. Mm. And immediately there was a talk like, you have to come up with a team because I live in Braybrook and Western Bulldogs is the closest one. So I thought, yeah, I'll go for that. Because in the inner western suburbs of Yeah, Melbourne. I live in that area, so I'm going to go for Bulldogs. And Vanessa, tell me when you developed an interest in Aussie rules footy. Well, I arrived in Australia in November 2015. From? From Mexico. Yeah, and I spent all 2016 watching AFL rules because my husband is Australian. So he introduced me to the football. And then I started to work in radio. And six months after comes this great opportunity to be in this project. And I say, well, I think I can do it because I already love footy. Yeah. <laughs> and what, what sports did you, or particularly football code, did you follow in your home country? Vanessa, were you a soccer fan? Yes. Back in Mexico? Yes, of course. Yeah, mm. I love soccer. Mexico is a very, very big sport country, and soccer is the main sports. But when I look at the AFL rules, I really grab my attention because the skills of the players and the marks. I was so impressed with the marks. You need to be a really athlete to play footy, and the game is so quick, and I get so excited. I say, oh, this is something new, and I love it. Habir, why is it important to call the, the footy, Australian footy, in languages other than English, do you reckon? Well, I believe uh, it creates a strong bond 
especially if you're migrated from a country, you can start from the icebreaker to making good friends if you know footy. So people, what they're doing is they're watching the match and they're listening to the commentary. So all those... So they'll watch the match on telly. Yeah live and be listening to your commentary or Vanessa's commentary and so forth in their own language. Yep, yep, yep. That happens. And then what that does is the whole family, even if they can't understand the game, but as soon as they hear their own language, they feel a connection to it and then uh, they get interested. Well, let's have a listen to some footy commentary in Hindi. Habib, is that you in that commentary? Uh, yes, I am. <laughs> I've been blessed enough to like sort of uh, start that in um, Punjabi, I started. Then this is the more widely spoken Hindi. Oh, so uh, you do two languages? Yeah, yeah. Punjabi is my mother tongue. That's where I started. And now it's Hindi. But what that has done is that has made a lot of uh, new people accustomed to Australia's game. So I, they like it now just because they were hearing it. Now they understand it much better. So they can they can go to work. They can talk about it. They can talk about footy too because they know what that game is. Well, Fiv Antonio runs the football programs for the National Ethnic and Multicultural Broadcasters Council. Fiv, the, the broadcast rights for um, showing and hearing football matches are very highly sought after and cost a fortune. Uh, the mainstream broadcasters pay millions for the footy. How have you managed to do this? I presume you're not paying or you're not paying much for rights. Oh, we're not paying anything for the rights. In fact, they're paying us to put this on air, uh, so which is a they, difference. The AFL. The AFL, yes. Um, they're supporting us in what we're doing because we're the only organisation that can do this nationally. And that's what they were looking for. And it was something that just developed after a trial period of six months that was on because it was gathering momentum. And at the moment, the AFL sends it to all the clubs. So even with Greeks and Italians that have been here and speak English. Yeah, you know, your so background must be Greek, yeah? Greek Cypriot, actually, right. yeah. yeah. And you find a lot of Australianised first-generation people tuning in to the Greek broadcasts because they want to hear it in Greek, even if it's an amusing thing and it's the dream of the organisation to push all this into the mainstream like they do with Hispanic callers in California and the west coast of America. Well, Vanessa and Habir, tell me about the, the challenges for you of calling a game. Habir? It's sometimes hard uh, when you use the AFL glossary, like as in the words, we have to translate it. If, yes, how do you translate specky into uh, yes, <laughs> Hindi? It's, it's always a challenge, as you said. So what we sort of do is because we have that connection with our listeners as well through the social media. So we say that, oh, yeah, we are trying to find word for this. You help us. So they sort of get involved in that too. So specky would be like because he takes a mark. So we can't really exactly translate or find a word for it, but we just have to come up with something. What about for you, Vanessa? I think that could be the, the most fun part <laughs> of this, the translation, definitely, you know, like disposal. I need to ask, uh, what is disposal in Spanish? Actually, I've been watching some rugby in Spanish from Argentina to check the words that the commentators in, in rugby in Spanish to apply AFR rules in Spanish. For example, disposal is a pase, uh, mark, marca, stoppage, una jugada desde la posición parada. 
So it's challenging, but it's fun to do it. And do you know the names of all the players? Uh, try our best. <laughs> try our best. Yeah. Because they don't wear their names on the back of their jumpers. <laughs> yeah, I, I that, actually... That is my, my complaint now. Yeah. <laughs> but as you know, we have this advantage of listeners being new as well. So you can of, be, you can all be learning together. That's it. That's what we say. That I yeah, we are learning with you. We try to look at special features of the players, like tattoos, head coats, or you know, like uh, something special that the that, that distinguishes unique, them. Yeah, that distinguishes yeah. the players. Like Dustin Martin is the most easy one. Dustin Martin, who <laughs> yeah. plays for Richmond, my exactly. team, he's very distinguishable. Exactly, yeah. he's the most easy uh, one. To tattoos do. around his neck. Around. They're pretty good. They've learnt a lot along the way. Well, Fiv, do you want to add any more languages? to the footy calls? Are there are there still gaps that you want to fill? Well, there's about 100 languages still left mm. to go in our <laughs> gaps. Um, so we try and get the most popular, maybe the, the more developing uh, languages. And I'd like to see another two or three languages by next year. But it's all, again, comes down to the infrastructure. We're a very small team and we have to take it slow and make sure that whatever we do is professional and is a success. Well, Vanessa and Habir, what, what kind of feedback do you get to your footy calls in, in Spanish and Hindi? Well, first of all, that is uh, amazing that this could be done, that they have footy in their language. So they say that they understand now more the rules and it's more easy to them to follow the game. Yeah, people, um, they even send sometimes poetry around that. There's football poetry? Football poetry sort of in our language, because especially if you come from north part of India, where I come from, Punjab, we have a game, it's called Kabaddi. And it's like, a, you can say a similar game to footy, but without the ball, with the tackling and stuff, that's ah, all involved. Okay. So... Because in that game, we have a lot of poetry sort of, and then sometimes they send us those poetry and stuff, which goes with that. It adds on to our sort of presentation as well, but it gets them involved as well. And we've we've bought that footy to the actual households, whereas um, normally, like say if someone follows football, he will probably be looking at that game by himself. But what this has done with the different languages, it has bought footy to our households in our lounge rooms where everyone is watching it. So all the people um, from different age, doesn't matter they've been here one year, two year or 10 years or so, they can sort of relate each other. And they say that, oh, you've introduced us to that game. And it's, it's, it's a funny sort of journey as well, which we are on with our listeners. Well, for the National Ethnic and Multicultural Broadcasters Council, Vanessa Gattaca broadcasts AFL games in Spanish, Habir Singh Kang broadcasts in Hindi, Fiv Antonio is the executive producer of the operation. Vanessa Habir, Fiv, who's going to win the grand final this year? You better tell us. I think uh, for me, it could be Geelong. Yeah, Habib. well, Geelong is definitely the favourites at the moment. But I would say we see who's on the fairy tale. I don't think the team who's strong at this moment will win it. It will be um, someone who will just come up later at the stage. Fiv, do you want to make a Yeah, I'm going to get killed for this. I'm a Blues supporter. <laughs> so and it's going to go nationally. Yes, Carlton, the Salad Bottom dwellers. of the ladder, they're going to... Uh, no, 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 I said the Salad Dwellers. But uh, what I think is going to win the grand final, I think Collingwood's got a good chance this year. Yes, as well. Yes. That's why I'm going to get trampled on. <laughs> <laughs> well, all the very best to all of you. Thank you. Thank you Thank for you, having us, Amanda. Great. 
And through this arrangement, with support from the AFL and the Community Broadcasting Foundation, you can get live games commentary, as well as in Hindi and Spanish and Greek, in Italian, Arabic, Mandarin and Dinka. Dinka is the language of South Sudan. Let's hear a bit of an AFL game being called in Dinka. <laughs> And the AFL match commentaries in Dinka and those other languages are distributed across Australian community radio stations and podcast streaming platforms. And as far as this program goes, well, Sporty is available on your favourite podcast service, as well as the ABC Listen app, as well as broadcast on RN. I'm Amanda Smith, and coming up next time on Sporty, can being fit and exercising protect you from cancer? Really? You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.